Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. And this week, I'll be turning it over to a new host who will be joining us periodically in coming months, newly recruited London-based Quillette editor Iona Italia. In this maiden Quillette podcasting experience, Iona is going to be talking about white supremacy. And just to be clear, I'm talking about real white supremacy, the kind espoused by racists who actually want to cleanse the United States of non-white people. That's an important distinction to make because in recent years, the meaning of the words white supremacy has been diluted by culture warriors who now sometimes use them to describe pretty much everything from Shakespeare to standardized tests to ice hockey. Iona will be talking to Henry Rambo, that's R-A-M-B-O-W, a former missionary, a book author, and now the host of his own podcast called Hate No More. In that podcast, Rambo tells the story of a man he calls Casper, a young American prisoner who becomes radicalized into white supremacy while serving time for homicide. Behind bars, he joins and then helps lead a group called State Prison Skinheads. But over time, Casper finds his way out of the white supremacist movement for reasons that Henry will explain to Iona during their discussion. But first, here's a brief excerpt from episode 3 of Hate No More, in which Casper talks about the moment he informed his father about what he'd been doing in prison. I wasn't expecting a visit, you know, so when they told me I had a visit, I was like, who the hell's here? You know, and they're like, I don't know, you got a visit. So... I went down to the visit hall and I walk in and I didn't even recognize him. He was in a wheelchair, weighed about 90 pounds. And I I walked right past him. And then I heard his voice, hey boy. And I looked down, oh shit. You know, and I'm like, dad? You know, and he's like, yeah. You know, I told you I was dying. Yeah, he told me he just wanted to come up and say goodbye he wanted to do it in person because he wasn't going to make it for me to get out and I told him all about SPS and what we had started I wish I hadn't I wish I would have just never said anything to him it broke his heart Casper was sent to prison at a young age for manslaughter after intervening in an argument between a man and his girlfriend, which had turned nasty. And uh, whilst in prison, he joined a white supremacist group and became actually a very active member and propagandist and recruiter for that group. And the podcast is the story of how he got involved in the white supremacy movement and how he exited that movement and became part of a group called the Formers. Mm -hmm. So people who are once white supremacists who are persuading others to leave the group. And in the course of that, you talk a lot about the failures of the criminal justice system, also the prevalence of white supremacist ideology in the police prison service and 
among the incarcerated? I would just add that for me, the importance of it and the relevance of his story goes beyond just racism and white supremacy and extremism, um, especially at a time when there's so much polarization of so many kinds and people are having difficulty reaching across divides and building bridges and changing people's minds and, and making connections. Um, and so a big part of his story that speaks to that is just the question of what works in reaching someone who disagrees with you? What works in, in changing someone's mind and what doesn't work? Because I think right now, so many things that people try, things that are instinctive to try to talk to people, to debate people, to reason with people, don't work. And often, not only do they not work, but they backfire and make the situation even worse. What led you to him? And how did you persuade him to tell you his story? Uh, so I first ran across Casper in the online atheist community. I myself am a former evangelical missionary and stopped believing and then, you know, uh, started getting involved in some online atheist communities. And I saw him I saw this guy there and he was, uh, you know, in addition to just talking about religion and atheism, he was also frequently posting things debunking white supremacist ideology. And so I just started following him and, uh, and he followed me back and, and we just kind of interacted every once in a while. And was this on Twitter? Yeah, this was on Twitter. And he has since left Twitter and I've, I've since pretty much stopped using Twitter myself. But that was, that was initially where we connected. And I was promoting a book that I'd written about my own deconversion experience. And so he knew that I was a writer. And after a while, he was asking around. Uh, he wanted someone to help him tell his story. I scheduled a phone call with him and we talked for about an hour. And just the more he told me about his story, the more fascinated I became in it. And the more I thought that uh, I really want to work on this project, even if it doesn't go anywhere, just because his experiences were just so fascinating, having gone from a person who he actually had been an evangelical himself, had been planning on becoming a preacher. He also had been trying to become a pro MMA fighter and wanted to, he wanted that to be his sort of brand. It was the, the toughest preacher in America who would go around doing fights and evangelizing <laughs> and then ended up going to Trenton State Prison in New Jersey after intervening and killing a man. He eventually got that overturned as self-defense and then getting involved, not just in the white supremacy movement, not just in becoming a leader of this gang, but even in an atheist church. They call themselves an atheist church that is a white supremacist organization that, that's now called the Creativity Movement. At the time, they called themselves the World Church of the Creator. So, you know, basically an atheist white supremacist cult. And then eventually, when he finally got out of prison, left his gang, left the white supremacy movement entirely, and then started trying to help other people get out too. And it was just, you know, such an amazing, powerful story. And I had always been deeply interested in human conflict and conflict resolution because I see humanity as our own greatest threat. You know, we can look at the problems that, that threaten all of humanity, and I think any individual one of them could be solved if we would work together. But, you know, we have all these tribalistic divisions and disagree often about very petty things. Why was it that you decided to create a podcast series rather than writing his story up as a book? If I have time, I would like to do it as a book. It's just that initially while I was doing the writing and, and I would take 
quotations of things that he said and write them down on the page. They just seemed so sterile when I read them. But when you hear his voice telling the story and, and he's, you know, you hear all the emotion in it, it's just so much more impactful that way. I was wondering, as I was listening, to what extent you trust his story? There were little things about that. In a lot of cases, he was recalling things that happened over 30 years ago. And so you do expect misremembrances. You do expect, you know, anytime someone's telling their own story, maybe a little bit of embellishment. I was skeptical of some things, but I did do a lot of research and I contacted courts in New Jersey, courts in Pennsylvania. I obtained different court documents, trial transcripts. Um, I got some prison records, including discipline records and information about when he had gone to solitary confinement and what for, and transfer records, contacted a judge in one of his cases, called his high school, flew out to visit him and talked to family members and friends. And then Casper himself gave me a lot of documentation. He gave me a lot of stuff that I was surprised he gave me, things that had a lot of personal information, government ID and things like that, certificates from when he was little in school and certificates from the courses that he completed in prison, you know, things like uh, welding courses and carpentry courses. And so I did do a fair amount of legwork and I, I didn't want that to sort of get in the way of telling the story, you know, as the original aim of the project was just for him to tell his story, how he got into white supremacy and how he got out. Mm. Even if there were some details where he embellished things or remembered things incorrectly or something where maybe he was describing a prison fight and it, you know, he just wants to tell his version of how it went. The main ideas of what happened, you know, what he went to prison for, where he was in prison, the fact that he was in a white supremacist gang and had a high ranking role in that gang and was active in that for well over 10 years. And then the fact that he got out and did change his mind and the fact that he started helping other people leave, like the most important things I'm fully confident in. So both his convictions, at least as they're detailed in the podcast, sound extremely unjust to me. Mm -hmm. Tell us about what happened during his first conviction and why he was given such a long prison sentence for what on its face seems like a, a case of simple self-defense. He was on a boardwalk in New Jersey with his girlfriend. He heard some commotion and went over and saw a man beating his girlfriend, the other man's girlfriend. He intervened and the other guy pulled a knife and Casper ended up killing the guy with his own knife. And here's where, you know, the details are a little bit fuzzy. There is some testimony on it. It's kind of a, a borderline case. Was the man intending to kill Casper with the knife? It wasn't clear. Did Casper have to kill the other man? Maybe not, but that's what happened. And so just the way that the self-defense law worked in New Jersey at the time, it was ruled that he used excessive force and that he shouldn't have had to kill the other man. And so in my mind, that is a little bit of a borderline case because you know I have Casper's account of it. And there's some testimony, but I don't know exactly what happened. I don't know exactly what was in Casper's mind. I don't know to what extent the other person was trying to kill Casper. But, you know, the other guy ended up dying and they ruled that it was excessive force. So how serious a problem is white supremacy in the U.S.? Whenever there are kind of marches and demos, there's always a pathetic number of people there. What worries me is not the overall numbers, but how prevalent this is within prison itself among prisoners, also within the prison service among the prison guards, also among the police. 
So at one point, I think Casper is tattooing a swastika or some other white supremacist symbol onto a prison guard in exchange for certain favors. Even if overall this is a really small movement, if it's significant within those groups, that is very worrying. My father, when he graduated from high school, and this was 57 years ago, so you could say, okay, that was a long time ago, um, and this was in Missouri, his teacher went around to everyone in his classroom and said, okay, now that you're graduating, what are you going to do next? And one person in my dad's classroom said, I'm going to become a police officer so I can kill black people. And he just said it right out. And he didn't say black people. He said the N-word. And apparently, I mean, that was something that, that people felt comfortable saying back then. Okay. And that was, granted, that was 57 years ago. But if there were a number of people joining police departments with that mindset, then, you know, maybe those people, maybe there were a significant number of those people in police departments who have only been retiring within the last 20 years. And that might have been a part of the culture for a long time. And there might be some, you know, some holdovers and some influences lingering from, from that part of the culture. Um, again, I want to stress that's, that was, you know, one anecdote. And I would also like to say that I've known people who go to law enforcement schools here, and I'm very encouraged and impressed by the attitudes of the young people. You know, these are kids in high school or just out of high school who are going to law enforcement school and for their reasons for wanting to go into law enforcement. And I think the ones that I've met are doing it for the right reasons and have good attitudes. And um, that gives me some hope and confidence uh, in our law enforcement system in the future. But, you know, it, it has been a problem historically, of course, and there are some places where it's a much bigger problem than other places. What about in the prison service and among prisoners? I think in the prison system, it's much worse. And, you know, among the prisoners, of course, American prisons are notorious for race gangs. And I think it's it's kind of common knowledge that if you go to prison, you almost have to join a race gang in order to survive. At least that's what everyone says and seems to believe. And it's interesting hearing Casper talk about it as he looks back, because there was a point where he says, and, you know, I wasted so much time just being hateful and being involved in that racist ideology. But there was an article about a year and a half ago by Jason Deeren, the Associated Press, and he was looking into white supremacy among prison guards in Florida, in the Florida prison system. And he went beyond Florida. He found that it's, it's common throughout the U.S. for prison guards, for corrections officers, to be in their own racist organizations KKK members. Uh, in 2017, there was a group of Florida prison guards who were convicted of plotting to murder uh, a black inmate who was about to be released or maybe had just been released. Um, there have been cases of prison guards arranging for members of white supremacist organizations in the prison population to have meetings of their organization or of their prison gangs. And there have been cases of people facing retaliation for trying to report these things. So prison guards who report racist activities of other prison guards. There was a case of prison guards in Florida who had noose keychains, and um, that was kind of one of their little, I don't know, signifiers to say anyone who has this keychain is, is part of this sort of white supremacist clique who uh, would be abusive toward black inmates. And it's, it's known that the prison 
guards themselves uh, often self-segregate. So the, the white corrections officers and the black corrections officers don't mingle. I wonder whether one of the things that lures people towards this ideology when they're in the police or in the prison service is that they are coming into disproportionately into contact with violent people from among the black community. And therefore, it seems to them, the racism feels to them more intuitive. They're more ready and primed for that kind of ideology. Of course, they're also dealing with white violent criminals, but there is a disproportion there. And I can see that that could make the ideology more seductive to them. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think any kind of negative interaction with members of other races tends to kick in that confirmation bias of any kind of racist ideas they might have already had or been exposed to before and makes them think, yeah, okay, I was right. This is really how it is. In that kind of environment where there's just you know, so much violence and so much hatred already, it's very rare to have any kind of positive interactions, which is ultimately uh, what's needed to overcome the biases and the hatred. One of the things that Casper says is that we shouldn't underestimate the intelligence of these white supremacist gang members. And it's one of the moments at which I'm most skeptical of what Casper is saying, because the examples he gives or the way that he defines their intelligence sounds more like they're well organized. He says things like a lot of these guys work out a lot and they've got good methods for distributing their propaganda and stuff like that. So they're effective in the sense of being physically menacing, being basically good thugs and also being good propagandists finding ways to smuggle out material, etc. But I don't want to be kind of rude because obviously this this is a guy who's been through a tremendous change, has shown a lot of self-awareness and ability to transform himself. But neither Casper nor any of the people he's describing seem like they really have the best critical thinking skills. I wonder how much education might help insulate people against these ideologies or whether that's really just wishful thinking on my part. He talked about a lot of this anti-evolutionary pseudoscience on which it's based, which goes against understandings of evolutionary biology, and that's shoring up this more religious belief. So I, I think you're right that education would help a lot. And Casper himself says that one of the things that made him vulnerable to getting sucked into white supremacist ideology was lack of knowledge. He just said that he didn't know anything about evolution or genetics. And so when he was presented with these things that sounded scholarly, you know, that were written by supposed scientists, it just sounded like it made sense to him. And he thought, oh, okay, well, that's, that's accepted science. And so, yeah, a better level of education and understanding of, of just yeah, genetics and evolution itself would certainly help. But yeah, in general, the way our psychology works is when you've already got a belief, you don't need a large number of respected academics, you know, people at Harvard or Stanford or whatever. You know, for example, anti-vaxxers, if they can find you know, that one person with a PhD in epidemiology who comes down on their side, then they feel like, okay, that makes my position tenable. And then, and then they move forward with it. And same thing with climate change deniers. They'll say, if, if we can find this one person with a PhD in something who says that, you know, the climate 
is actually getting cooler, then they're okay with that. Or young earth creationists, if they can find the one person with a PhD in physics who says that he thinks he can show how the earth actually is only 6,000 years old, then they feel like, okay, that, that gives me sort of an excuse to hold on to this belief. Another thing I've noticed is the dilution of the term white supremacy. It's become a kind of standing joke, you know, that absolutely everything is white supremacy. Mm. Punctuality is white supremacy and Mm -hmm. being good at maths is white supremacy and reading Jane Austen is white supremacy. I wonder how you feel about that in considering that you are studying actual white supremacy and trying to combat that movement. Yeah, I I definitely see what you're saying there. And I I do think that misusing the term white supremacy and applying it to things that are not true white supremacy is very harmful and ultimately ends up giving the really hardcore white supremacists fodder to be able to say, you know, look, they're lying about us. And yeah, I was thinking about this when you were asking about the statistics of white supremacy, because ultimately it comes down to the question of how do you define white supremacy and how restrictive is your definition going to be? Because if you're limiting yourself to people who are members of explicitly racist organizations that are you know, paramilitary organizations that are planning on taking action and trying to influence the government and actively trying to create a white ethnostate, like that's very clear cut white supremacy. But then you have a spectrum that goes all the way to, you know, good people who have some subconscious biases and, and will say and do things that are insensitive and obnoxious. And so where on that spectrum do you draw the line? And regarding the statistics, if you're just looking at that first most restrictive definition I was describing there, then the numbers are pretty small, I think. I think the consensus is about 400 to 500 white supremacist organizations in America. I think that peaked in 2019 and has gone down a little bit with 150 of those roughly being categorized as explicitly white nationalist organizations. What's the difference? White nationalist would just mean that they're explicitly trying to create a white ethnostate, that they believe that the defining principle of the country They want the defining principle of the country to be white identity, whereas other groups might not explicitly say that, but they're just racist groups that do believe that whites are superior. And so, again, there's so much overlap that probably most racist groups would agree with a lot of the white nationalist ideology anyway. And and the numbers are still, even if it's a minority, the numbers are big enough that it's still very disturbing, especially because of social media and the ability to spread propaganda widely on the internet. They don't really have to recruit individuals anymore. And in fact, most people who become white supremacists now sort of self-recruit and self-radicalize just by watching videos online, going to websites and going down rabbit holes and then reading things that are more and more extreme. And only then after they start believing the ideology might actually seek out an organization to become a part of. And so because of that, using just official membership roles, not not that I think they tend to keep probably lists of official memberships, but if one were to use that, it would it would definitely underestimate the number of people because Yeah, here's what the ADL, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, says. It says, 
most white supremacists do not belong to organized hate groups, but rather participate in the white supremacist movement as unaffiliated individuals. Thus, the size of the white supremacist movement is considerably larger than just the members of hate groups. And that's why you see a lot of sort of lone wolf attacks, like the recent attack that happened outside of Dallas. I think they determined conclusively that he was involved in white supremacy. But then there's another statistic. This was shortly after the infamous Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. There was a poll funded by the Washington Post and ABC News. They found that 9% of respondents said that they thought it was acceptable to have neo-Nazi or white supremacist views. I think it's very effective for people who were involved in a toxic ideology like white supremacy, who have reformed I think those are really good people to persuade other people to leave, that they have the kind of, at one point, Casper Casper keeps one of his white supremacist tattoos, he doesn't have it lasered off or tattooed over, in order to retain some credibility, so that when he tells people who are in the movement, you need to leave this movement, it's bullshit, he can open up his shirt and say, I know what I'm talking about, I was in this too, here's my tattoo. I thought that was very powerful and surely very effective. I'm a little bit more wary of when people who were formerly extremists become public spokespeople in general, because unfortunately, I have seen too many former extremists have a brief period of sanity and then go kind of careening over to the opposite extreme. I'm thinking of people like Majid Nawaz, who was a former Islamist, and he reformed. He founded a Muslim reform organization called Quilliam. He was a major public broadcaster here in the UK. And for a while, for a period of about a little less than a decade, maybe, I felt he was one of the most sensible and moderate voices in UK politics. And now he has become a conspiracy theorist, extraordinaire, and he is sympathetic to the views of someone like David Icke, who thinks the Jews are lizard people. It seems to me that it it is dangerous to allow people who have been extremists to become general kind of spokespeople who can attract a lot of followers. I think that's a valid concern and that it is reasonable to suppose that people who have a history of falling into extremism in the past might be more likely to fall back into some kind of extremism in the future, whether it's (laughs) the opposite end of what they were in to begin with. With Casper's story in particular, I'm I'm certainly not proposing that he be given a platform for life or a sort of tenure position as a spokesperson for anti-racism or anything. But, you know, with him and even with Majid Nawaz, we need to be able to say, let's take the things that he said during his period of clarity, because he did say some things that were very insightful and helped us to understand the nature of extremism and how to get people out. Also, to balance that out, especially, I think, within the last 10 or so years, there are also plenty of people who were never in extremist movements to begin with, who have also kind of gone off the rails, you know, some entertainers and and journalists and political figures. So, you know, it could happen to anyone. And so nobody should have blanket, automatic, uh, respected platform for life. And we need to always continue to evaluate what people are saying and evaluate uh, you know, when they're making sense and when they stop making sense. You said at the beginning that you think a lot of people are trying to persuade people using the wrong methods. Mm-hmm. Could you maybe start by talking about 
what you think the counterproductive approaches are and why, and then what you think works or can work. I guess nothing is guaranteed. You know, I think a lot of people's initial impulse is, okay, I'm going to arm myself with facts and logical reasoning, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to start convincing people. What I think almost never works is just debating someone, at least not if you start with that. Arguments don't work. And certainly interactions on social media, just engaging with people on social media is almost never beneficial. Demonization and stigmatization of people tends to only drive them deeper into their beliefs. And I've got a, a report from the Rand Corporation. They did a study. Um, I was trying to find some statistics on what the success rate of some of these organizations of former extremists is in um, deconverting other extremists. And it's hard to find good statistics on it, but there have been a lot of case studies and a lot of interviews of not just the former extremists themselves, but of their family members and friends over the long term saying, you know, what were the things that worked? What didn't work? What were the changes you observed in this individual? Um, and they even interview people who uh, left extremism, but then were attracted back to it after a while because maybe they they missed the the sense of belonging or something that they had from it or the sense of meaning. And one of the things that that study found was that heavy-handed institutional and programmatic approaches and any kind of punitive approach almost always backfired. If if it doesn't work to bring someone out of extremism, often it even just makes them more resentful, more hateful, more angry towards society. So certainly any kind of of online interactions, especially in any kind of anonymous forum where you're not face-to-face -face with another person, are almost doomed to fail and maybe even just make things worse. Regarding what does work, I would say the number one most important thing, at, at least within the context of racist movements and white supremacy, the number one most important thing is having positive interactions with members of other races. And interactions in which you recognize some kind of commonality between yourself and them and form some kind of bond. And then after that kind of bond opens up, then people will be open to facts and reason and logic. But very rarely are they open to that until they've first made a personal bond with someone. Other things that, that work, one of the things that a lot of former extremists cite is simple disillusionment uh, with their own organization um, after they've been in it for a while and they start witnessing toxicity within it and hypocrisy within their own groups and they start to feel disillusioned by it and start to question the beliefs. That opens them up to the possibility of leaving and then they need a way out. They need people to welcome them back out into mainstream society because then at that point they feel trapped and a lot of them want out but they feel like they're not able or they're not ready to get out and they don't know how. And one thing that is often suggested is having shared goals. Definitely. Small-scale projects where you're working together mm -hmm. on something. Have there been initiatives like that which have proved helpful that you know of? I have heard of some, but I, I don't know details. But when you mention that, that makes me think of one of my favorite videos, which I, I'm sure you've seen. It was a Heineken advertisement. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Uh, no. It's a brilliant advertisement where they bring people together. And I'm not sure, you know, to what extent it was staged and, you know, how real the people were, but I still like the, the principle that it proposes, 
which is they bring two people with conflicting views together who are at opposite ends of some spectrum on, on some issue that, that people feel very strongly about. And they put them in a room together with a task and they say, you know, here's this box of materials and here are some instructions and you're supposed to follow these instructions and build this thing. And they don't even know what it is they're building yet, but they have to start working together. They have to hand each other tools. They have to hold one part while the other person puts another part, you know, connects another part to it. And then it ends up that they built a little bar. And then after they finished building the bar, each of them is shown a video of the other person expressing their view, which often might sound hateful to the other person. And then that they're told like, okay, now that you've worked together, you've built this thing together. And now that you've seen that the other person has this view that you strongly disagree with, what are you going to do? You can have a drink together or you can just go your separate ways. And, you know, it shows them sitting there and, and having a drink together and, and having a productive conversation about their differences. And again, I don't know to what extent that particular advertisement was staged and if those were real actual people expressing those views, but it did express something that has been found by social psychologists. I think Jonathan Haidt has talked about this. He's one of my favorite psychologists in understanding people's beliefs and how their beliefs change. But the idea that what you were saying earlier, it's very important for people to bond over a common goal or a task that they're working on together. And it's ideal if neither one of them is given a position of power over the other one. So they're kind of equals working together toward a common goal. And I think there have been some cases in history in the United States during the Great Depression. There was a big effort to uh, the federal government recruited young men and had them working together to build things like in national parks and things just to do big construction projects. And they brought people from different backgrounds and they were working together toward these common goals and, you know, made friends with people who had vastly different views than they did, who they might have not have gotten along with before. And I think the same thing can be seen in the military. You know, once people are put on a team together and they're working together toward a common goal, the superficial differences between them that might have caused problems earlier tend to go out the window and then they form lasting bonds. It's sort of the opposite of the adversarial relationship that you get into if you are criminals and police or prisoners and prison officers, right? Right. And unfortunately, I think our, our instincts, whenever we're faced with something that we disagree with or that makes us angry, our instinct is to fall into that adversarial mode and become confrontational. And that's what backfires. Were there things about Casper's story that particularly surprised you? You're a school teacher. Has this impacted the way that you teach? A lot of the things that Casper told me about were things that I had a sort of vague awareness of, but no detailed or deep knowledge of. And so that includes prison culture and, and what it's like in prison and how toxic it is there and how people become even more hardened and less able to participate in society. And I think even having read a lot about how to change people's minds, and again, like uh, a lot of the work of Jonathan Haidt, for example, um, just hearing a very powerful story about how that happened in one particular man's life in such extreme circumstances did impact me. And I have actually, um, I have taught some 
short elective courses on the nature of changing people's minds and overcoming hateful ideologies. And Casper introduced me to some people that I probably wouldn't have heard of before. One of them was Daryl Davis. I wasn't aware of Daryl Davis, but... Amazing guy. Yeah. Black musician, writer, actor, uh, does a lot of stuff, and but um, famous for interacting with people in the KKK and um, just showing them empathy. And then after their, you know extended interactions with him, they finally decided, I, I just can't believe this stuff anymore and I can't remain active in this movement. And and that's basically the kind of thing that changed Casper too. And another great person he introduced me to, not not personally, but introduced me to her work uh, was Dia Khan, yeah. um, who also had a similar experience. She came over here uh, to the US to do a documentary on you know white supremacy and and the far right movements and ended up changing some people just because she showed them her humanity. And a lot of these people, they were in bubbles. They were interacting only with other people who had the same ideas they had and only with people who looked like them and talked like them. And so they had this idea in their minds of what people of other races are like, but it was only an idea in their minds. It was a fiction. And when they finally came face to face with her and were talking to her and realized that they liked her and that she was kind and that she had, you know, a heart and an experience that they could come to care about, then they changed and they, they couldn't hold on to that fictional image that they'd had in their minds for so long of what people of other races were like. And so interacting with Casper really impacted me and that it made me realize how powerful empathy and emotional and social connections with other people are. Because I always thought of myself, <laughs> even, even though I myself have, have believed things that I now look back on and, and think are ridiculous, I put a lot of stock in the power of reason and logic. And I've, I've come to realize that reason and logic are fantastic and indispensable tools, but they don't become useful in changing another person's mind until you first establish that personal connection and that have that empathy and some kind of bond with them, recognizing your common humanity, some kind of common experience. You know, for example, in Casper's case, it was when he was working in a construction site alongside an older black man, and he had just come out of prison within the last couple of years and was still a neo-Nazi skinhead and still, you know, fully racist, but was working alongside this guy. And they just started talking. And he heard the guy talking about his experience serving in the U.S. military in the Vietnam War. And Casper was like, my dad fought in the Vietnam War, so tell me more about that. And then just the more they talked, he just they had this bond. Again, they were working together on a common goal, working on a construction site. And all of those barriers that used to mean so much to him just kind of melted away. Um, and he just realized, like, I can't hate this guy. And then he was open to reason and logic. And after that, that was when he describes how he started doing research on the internet and he would intentionally, and this is one of the things that I respect that Casper was able to do because so many people are not able to do this. You know, when he would search for something, he would intentionally search for things that challenged the viewpoint that he'd been holding for so long. You know, he, at one point he described Googling are different races, different species. 
And a lot of the first things that came up on his search page were the racist ideologies, the racist stuff, you know, that would confirm his beliefs, but he would scroll down and he would read other things and then slowly started to change his mind. But that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't first had that empathic connection. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events.